to our new podcast, Global.Science. I am Lev Hordisky. And I am Fabia Battistuzzi. So, Lev, what are we going to do here? Well, we wanted to talk about science education all over the world, mostly because it's very hard to get people to write blogs. And so we figured it might be easier to just talk to them and see what challenges they face all over the world. Because as scientists, uh, we, we don't do a good job in the classroom, do we? No, usually we don't. We love to talk about what we know, but just because we love to talk about it, it doesn't mean that we are actually good at it. That is true. You need specialized teaching skills to teach well. And a lot of people just have the assumption that because you've gone through the education system, you can somehow magically teach. Uh, Is that the way it works for you? Do you know how to teach? You went through the education system. I went through the education system and uh, I ended up with me standing in front of my classroom for the very first time, wondering, uh, okay, how do I do this? Because nobody ever taught me how to teach. And I think a lot of people all over the world have similar problems. And it's becoming especially important for science education because so many decisions in what we're dealing with today requires an understanding of how the science process works and not just what science has discovered. It's kind of like uh, watching a movie and thinking, oh, if I memorize the plot of the movie, I will somehow magically know how to make uh, movies. And that's kind of how people think science works. If you know all the uh, facts of science, somehow that makes you an expert in science. And the process and what comes out of that process can be very, very different. And it's even a problem because in the long run, if students uh, don't get the right idea of how science actually works, they bring those misconceptions with them when they are adults. And so they are going to get upset when they are in the real world out there and trying to understand what scientists are actually doing And seeing that it doesn't fit what their idea of science is, they will think that science is bogus and is not really working properly, when in reality it's a misconception that comes from probably their early learning days. So we are going to fix everything. Of course. Yeah, it's very easy. Um, So uh, to go about trying to fix it, um, I started an organization called Science Voices. It is a nonprofit geared at improving equity in digital science education because so much of science education has gone digital lately. And if we don't do it right, we just end up perpetuating a lot of problems. Um, One of the biggest problems I dealt with was working with really high-end systems, really high-end computers, and an attitude of, if we put it on the internet, it'll be available for everyone and fix everything. And it doesn't really work that way. And trying to get digital equity... Uh, when it comes to science teaching, has been surprisingly challenging because you have to overcome cultural barriers, language barriers, um, and it's not just cultural barriers like culture in a different country. It's it's the university culture or the school culture uh, that you um, end up working in that can be very resistant to change. So uh, this season, we're going to spend a lot of time talking with people who are working in those kinds of ecosystems to better understand uh, 
what kinds of challenges they face and where the commonalities and the differences are in uh, all these challenges that we face in trying to transform science education for the 21st century. So Lev, tell, tell our audience a little bit about what is your background? What kind of science do you do? So my background is astrobiology. I got a PhD in astrobiology along the geosciences route. And for those of you who have never heard of astrobiology, it's a, you could do anything you want science. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mixture of geology and biology and astronomy, sometimes sociology and sustainability. Uh, so I came at it from the geoscience perspective because I thought the easiest way to study aliens, if we haven't discovered them, which we haven't, is to go look back in Earth history because the ancient Earth can be quite an alien world depending on how deeply in time you look. But you're also an astrobiologist, aren't you? I am also an astrobiologist, but I'm from the biology side. And a funny story, uh, this is how Lev and I met back in 2004 when we had our first field trip as graduate students on uh, uh, going to a number of astrobiological sites around the Midwest area of the U.S. And so that's how we met and we stayed friends uh, trying to keep each other sane throughout the PhD process. It didn't work. Perfect. Um, but, um, and then eventually uh, we moved on to different uh, different fields. I am doing research in, uh, um, in evolutionary biology. Uh, that's my primary area of research. And I am an associate professor in, uh, in a university. And so obviously as part of what I do is I interact with the students all the time, whether I'm mentoring them because they are in my lab or I'm teaching them because they are in my classrooms. And um, as we kept in touch, Lev and I, talking about, uh, you know, our new steps in life, uh, one thing that we realized is that I kept complaining about how I didn't know how to teach and how I needed help in learning how to teach properly. And Lev learned how to do that. And so I kept asking him, help, help, help. And uh, we finally realized that it's not just a question of learning how to do it, but also having the right tools to do it. And uh, that's one of the big things about Science Voices that is trying to develop new tools that can empower us teachers to actually be able to bring to reality the vision that we have for, our, for how our classrooms should look like, no matter where we are in the world. All right. I got distracted by a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> we are making this post podcast from uh, my kitchen table looking outside the yard. <laughs> All right. So one thing that I um, think is kind of cool is that because we are both astrobiologists, we are used to talking uh, across the fields. And that's one of the things that we found uh, is very useful as a teacher is learning how to talk to different audiences. It's It can be quite challenging because uh, oftentimes science teachers, what I found is that um, science teachers like to talk to science students, and most of us end up teaching in general education classes, and most of those students don't want to be scientists. They don't have an interest in science. They don't plan on becoming scientists. They don't see the relevance of science. They're only taking the science courses because someone is telling them that they have to. And it becomes very challenging to get those students 
um, to get those students interested in the topics that you're teaching. And so you need to learn to communicate with those students um, through their particular interests. And that's where having an astrobiology background is really helpful because I had to learn to know what, what the hell you were talking about whenever you mentioned anything about biology. Because in geosciences about, what was it, 15 years ago, if you didn't understand how something worked, you'd say, oh, it's a biological function. <laughs> Which is a very generic term to say basically it could be anything. Uh, while on my end, I had to learn apparently how to lick rocks because that's how geologists tell what a rock is made of. Mm, tasty. <laughs> <laughs> But so this is what we're going to do in our uh, first season of our podcast. We are going to talk to all our friends and colleagues who are science teachers, and they are science teachers across many different fields and uh, all over the world. And so we're trying to see um, what are their stories and how we are probably all sharing many of the common uh, issues that we face. We should be honest, most of our friends are geologists and biologists, so we might need to work on the diversity of science fields as we move forward. So if you happen to have a friend who's an astronomer or a biochemist or any other field, please let us know and we would be happy to interview them. Those are still biology and geology related. Eh, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to try out this format, I think I should interview you. Uh, because you're the teacher that's teaching in challenging areas. I'm not teaching anywhere now. I'm between jobs, which is a fancy way of saying that all my plans fell through. Um, but uh, just blame it on the pandemic like everybody else. Oh, that's right. I can't get anything done because of the pandemic. So, so it's fine. Um, but realistically, I am moving from place to place to investigate how teaching happens on location and not just hear people talk about it, but actually experience it. Experience it. Uh, so I am here in Michigan with my good friend, Dr. Fabia Batistuzzi. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So tell me a little bit about where you teach. What kind of students do you tend to work with? So um, I'm at Oakland University. We are... Uh, for... It's not in California, is it? It's not in California, but we are in Rochester. That it's not in New York. So it's very confusing. We are Oakland University in Rochester that is in Michigan. Um, we are a four-year institution, and uh, but we are kind of a un in a unique position because we are sort of in kind of squished in between the two big ones in Michigan, U of M and MSU. Um, and so we are sort of considered the little ones uh, uh, in this area of Michigan. And what are those universities for our acronym averse audience? Oh, sorry. Uh, University of Michigan and Michigan State University. Yes, we use a lot of acronyms in astrobiology. In, in yes. fact, we have acronyms within our acronyms. We had NAI, which was the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and NASA itself is an acronym. <laughs> it's a very nested world, um, which actually is an interesting point because acronyms seem to be a very beloved way of talking in English, especially in American English, while in Italian, we don't use acronyms that much. It was very confusing. Wait, so are you telling me you're not American? American? Uh, well, I am technically American because I'm a citizen now, but I uh, was born and raised, no, actually, I was born in Switzerland, but I was raised in Italy. Anyways, you get the point. My first 25 years were spent in, uh, in Rome, and then I decided to move to the US because I wanted to study astrobiology. And so here I am, still like 
40 years after. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, uh, you went to the university system in Italy. Yes, the undergraduate system. So how does that undergraduate system compared to what you're, uh, what you, what you're doing with your undergraduate students in Oakland? So the biggest difference that I have seen is that in, in Italy, at least in my days, things have changed a little bit, but um, still they're very different from the U.S. system. Um, students are considered to be independent. And nobody really guides them by the hand in terms of what they're supposed to do. Here in the U.S., you have quizzes every week and assignments every two weeks, and then you have homeworks, and then you have midterms. So basically, the students, every single day of their life, they know what they are supposed to be doing. Whether they do it or not, that's a different story. Um, <laughs> but they know what they're supposed to be doing. Back in my days, my first... Uh, day of my intro biology class, which was my very first class at the university level, we have been given a syllabus that was one page instead of the 12 that are common in the US in the US system. Um, in that syllabus, it was written a list of 15 books. We were told, pick whichever you want, but we're going to use any of them to ask you questions during the exams. Go have fun. And that was basically the extent of the interaction with the professor. So what did you do on a day-to-day basis in your classes? Did you go to class? Uh, I mostly went to class. Mostly? Yes, mostly. Um, once in a while, I didn't feel like it, but I mostly went to class. Hey, I was a student. Um, <laughs> but... Um, and then the professor would cover the topics and, you know, lectured in the usual way. It was a very static type of lecture, meaning the professor was up there with their, you know, um, PowerPoints. We didn't have PowerPoints back in the day, but... I'm assuming you used chalkboards. Close to it, yes. Because that's what it was when I was in college. Chalkboards that you can then, so that the back of the class could see, you just uh, use pulleys to pull it up so yes. you could see it at the top. Exactly. Um, and they would basically cover, you know, whatever topic uh, they needed to discuss, uh, but there was very little interaction. Uh, there was a very strong sense of the professor is up there, you lowly student are down there, and you are not supposed to bother the professor with your stupid questions. So is this the attitude you take in your classroom? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, and we're uh, cancelled. Oakland University still has to pay me. So, of course not. <laughs> My students are always welcome to come talk to me. No, in reality, this was a very, very big difference that I noticed. Um, the simple fact that there are scheduled office hours means that professors are open for the students to come to them. Now, Seems like not every student still gets that point. Many of them sometimes are shy or sometimes they don't feel like they can come to the professor and ask questions. But the the system is structured here in the U.S. in such a way that that is uh, at least possible. While in my time back in Italy, it, it was possible, but it was much more complicated. To get to a professor to talk to them. To get to a professor and talk to them. Are they hiding? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> I can't say behind their computer screens because back in the day, I think we had the two computers in the whole department. So they were hiding behind a pile of papers. <laughs> but the computer screens would have been massive back in the... Uh, they were thick, but they were very small. <laughs> 
So what do you try to do to uh, – so what kind of demographics do you work with for, for your students? Because what's interesting in at least my travels in the places that I've worked, and we'll be talking with people that I've worked with um, over the past few years uh, in, in future episodes, but I've noticed that there are different demographics. I've worked with at the with state colleges – I've worked with community colleges. I've worked overseas. I've worked at uh, HBCUs, which are historically black colleges and universities. And there are there are unique challenges to every type of group. The challenges I faced uh, teaching at a community college were very different from the challenges at a state university, which were very different from uh, challenges at an HBCU. Um, so what's the population like that you work with and what are some of the unique challenges that they face? So our students are made up primarily of kind of a standard type population, meaning they are, you know, 18 to 22 years old, the ones that are undergraduate, the graduates, of course, are a little bit older. Um, so the vast majority come to us uh, um, right after they graduate from high school, or uh, um, we have a fairly large number of students uh, that are transfer students, and so they come from the community college environment, and when they are ready, basically, they transfer into a university system. So that's kind of interesting, um, but I think the most... Uh, a particular uh, thing about our students is that many of them are actually working students, which is something that I wasn't used to because during my PhD and during my postdoc at other universities, uh, students, their job was to be students. That's what they would do all day. Um, but many of our students uh, are in reality working, sometimes part-time, sometimes full-time. And so they have um, both the unique challenges that they have to face, in many of them in terms of time management, um, but also a unique perspective. They are often more mature than many of the other students that I was used to interacting with. So for so it's a commuter college, and have you made have you found that you've needed to make adjustments in your classroom to account for the fact that students are working? Because that's my experience that I've had to loosen deadlines and and sometimes even work around students' schedules because they were working. They want to do the best job they can, but they have other responsibilities. Yep. So that is probably one of the most common adjustments that I always make. Be flexible on deadlines um, and be ready to just, you know, be there and listen to them. Some of them, maybe they are, you know, young students that have families and maybe they can't make a given work group meeting because they have to take their kid to the doctor. And so everybody needs to be uh, to be flexible. And with work group in particular, that can be a challenge because it affects other students as well. But as long as everyone in the class knows that the professor is flexible with the deadline, it takes away a lot of the stress because if one group member has an emergency, um, the other group members know that they can reach out and have their deadlines rescheduled. This actually just happened yesterday uh, when I was um, checking my email on Sunday, which I should not be doing because it's very bad work-life balance. <laughs> By the time this episode came out, that'll be months in the past. So Yes. <laughs> Do you think universities are doing enough to cater to the... Um, 
to the working student population? Because I know I've been reading in some places that uh, that there's just this lack of understanding, especially at some state universities, that students may not necessarily have their entire time to dedicate to their studies because they have other obligations. I think, honestly, universities could do more. I think uh, the situation is improving with the um, increase in number of online courses. But as we've seen, unfortunately, during the pandemic, especially at the beginning, um, when we switched to an online environment, the first instinct, let's say, of many of the teachers um, was to basically take whatever they were doing in the classroom into an online environment, which means teaching online synchronously. So everybody needs to connect at, you know, 10 a.m. in the morning or whatever, um, so that they can sit in front of their computer with the Zoom open and listen to the professor jibber-jabber. Um, but what I, um, I, I, I personally went the opposite route. I immediately transformed my classroom to online, but asynchronous, because my thought process was, well, during the pandemic, a lot of people have lost jobs. This includes parents of probably my students. And so maybe the students had to take on jobs, which means they couldn't be in front of Zoom at 10 a.m. in the morning because they had to go to work. So an asynchronous way of teaching would give them a flexibility. And my hope is that in whatever this new normal we're going to get that everybody talks about, I'm hoping we will not lose sight of this way of teaching because I think it would really help individuals that simply cannot work during the canonical nine to five working hours or simply they don't like working during those hours. We have a friend of ours that was definitely a nocturnal animal and he would study best at 3 a.m. in the morning. If it's online, what does it matter when you do it? It would be fine. A lot of schools, I think, have been mandating that students come back into the classroom and uh, restart the synchronous type of learning because there have been some tremendous learning losses for students who can't really self-regulate when it comes to uh, learning asynchronously or learning on their own. Um, what do you think? What do you think are some of the biggest lessons that we could pull out of that we should? keep in mind as we move forward, still muddling through the pandemic, but working towards a new normal, lessons that we can learn from the pandemic that applies to the types of populations that you've been working with? That is a very complicated question because I realized talking with my students that obviously when we moved to an online environment, um, many students uh, missed the day-to-day -day interaction, the casual chitty chat between them, but also between them and us instructors, um, which is, uh, you know, part of the social aspect of being in a campus, which uh, is is important even for their emotional development. I mean, these are most of them are still quite young, and so obviously, especially the first and the second years, uh, uh, really need that interaction. Um, I think, honestly. In an ideal world, um, I would like to see um, parallel curricula 
so that students can choose. Uh, if you want to major in biology, for example, you can pick one semester that you are online. You can pick one semester that you are uh, that you are in person, so that you can kind of mix and match the type of um, the type of curriculum based on what your preferences are and based on you know sometimes what life throws at you. Um, obviously, it's a huge amount of work from the university perspective because you effectively need to teach classes in three different ways all the time in person, online synchronous, online asynchronous, uh, which I don't think, honestly, it's doable, but maybe little bits and pieces could be done. Even in, a, in an in-person class, maybe, you know, keep some high stakes uh, assignments that are in an online asynchronous environment so that students don't lose points if they happen to not be able to come in at a certain day to take the high stake assignment or the exam or whatever it may be. That's an interesting concept. I know um, I used to work at Arizona State University and in some of the classes I worked with uh, in uh, with one of my friends, uh, one semester would be in person and the other two semesters, the spring and the summer, would be asynchronous online. So you'd have multiple experiences all throughout one year. But of course, as you mentioned, there's the challenge of how do you manage all these different modalities? Because when I was working at the University of the Virgin Islands last year, um, some of the classes in the second semester, uh, spring of 2021, went synchronous in class and some remained completely asynchronous or insynchronous online. And students had trouble getting from home where they would have internet connection to their classroom and then back home for their next class. But I think that's a very interesting perspective. And I think it requires, again, helping our students grow, uh, not just as scientists, but as people in the sense that they need to learn to know themselves. One of the things that I always tell my students, the students that joined my lab as research students, is I always tell them, look, I can't keep track of your life. I'm not a micromanager because I can barely keep track of my own life. Um, but if you know yourself and you know that you need to talk to me and have a scheduled standing meeting every week, otherwise you get nothing done, that's fine. Tell me and we will set it up. So I think helping students understand what their strengths and weaknesses are can help them learn how to manage their schedules, when to realize that, yes, it's good for me to do online asynchronous, and not just because I like to sleep until 11 a.m. in the morning, but because it's a better learning environment for me, or when it's better to actually be in person because I like to socialize. It's, it's you know, often an 18-year-old that doesn't know that because all they have known is a system in which they had to go to school. They had no choice. And so they didn't, they never even had to make those uh, those choices or think about it. So it's important to help them understand who they are. I can imagine that it works the same way for the uh, working adults who are your students. Very much so. And and for them, sometimes is even more the advantage of working with the working uh, with working adults is that they are often much more um, uh, conscious of what their needs are. They may not always know what they want, but they know what they need or can and cannot do. And so at least one thing is clear and we can build from there to help them 
tailor their studies to whatever life conditions they have. All right. Excellent. Well, that was a very interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us this week. It was my pleasure. Well, so Fabia, what did you think of our guest this week? I think she was awesome. Wasn't she so insightful? She was very insightful. And and, uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't sound so convinced. (laughs) Well, it's a test run, so we'll have to see if we can get better guests on afterwards. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) Well, we definitely will look forward to have our future guests, whoever they may be. (laughs) Yes, uh, insert name. We'll be here next week. (laughs) Excellent. I look forward to hearing what insert name has to say. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us. I think this was a really interesting conversation and um, we look forward to uh, all the future conversations we'll have with our other friends and colleagues who have very different and some similar experiences. Excellent. All right. See you next week. For this episode is A Nice Morning by Sentis from pixabay.com. Global.science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. You can learn more about our mission and help support our work at www.sciencevoices.org.